everyone, and welcome to this Institute for Government event at Conservative Conference. We're looking at the role of government in supporting innovation to boost growth and tackle regional inequality. We're very grateful to Costain for supporting this event. I'm Emma Norris. I'm the Director of Research at the Institute for Government. So Liz Truss has been clear that economic growth is a priority and innovation, so new ideas, new technologies, new processes, is an important driver of growth. But the UK performs much less R&D than other advanced economies, and the R&D that does happen tends to be very concentrated in the southeast, making large productivity gaps even larger. The government clearly has an important role to play in promoting innovation um, and increasing growth, particularly in economically underperforming areas. The Johnson administration had a really ambitious target to increase R&D spending um, to 2.4% of GDP by the mid-2020s, um, and committed to spending lots more public money outside London and the southeast. Now, we're yet to see uh, what role innovation is going to play in Liz Truss's government's agenda. And so this event is to ask what role should it play? How can government policy best support innovation in the private sector, which accounts for most R&D spending? And how can it ensure that R&D happens everywhere uh, to boost underperforming regional economies? Um, we're lucky to have an absolutely brilliant panel with us here today to talk about this. We've got George Freeman MP, the former Minister for Science, Research and Innovation, Adam Bennett, the Client Director for Central Government at Costain, um, Ed Cox, the Executive Director for Strategy, Integration and Net Zero at the West Midlands Combined Authority, and Rain Newton-Smith, the Chief Economist at CBI. So I'm going to start with some opening remarks from each of the panellists. Um, we'll then have some discussion amongst ourselves, and I'll make sure that I leave at least half of the event to take lots of questions from the audience, and we'll then finish at quarter to 12 sharp. For those of you who are tweeting today, we're using the hashtag IFGCONS22. So George, I'm going to come to you first. Um, over the last few years, the government's made really big commitments on R&D, including as part of the levelling up agenda. What role do you expect innovation to play in the, in the government's current drive for growth? Uh, well, thanks, Emma. Thanks to the IFG for convening this. As a former director of the IFG, I think it's a, a world-class institute of excellence and research in policymaking, so it's great to be here. Um, I'm slightly caught short because I've just swallowed 500 mils of paracetamol to see off last night's headache, and I didn't think I was going first, so bear with me. Um, uh, so look, first thing, the key word on this is former. So I'm not the Minister for Science, Technology and Innovation at the moment. It is uh, Nuzgani, Nuzgani was appointed last night, uh, so she's really the key in terms of what the government thinks. Let me just set the context a bit. Um, I, I think uh, there's, there's been quite a kind of understandable, perhaps, panic that suddenly everything we've been doing has been thrown out of the window. And all of the 10-year work that I've been lucky enough to be part of with David Willits, the life science strategy, the agri-tech strategy, the, the sector strategies, the place-based work uh, is all out and we're doing a tire screeching U-turn and we're back to 1986 and trickle down. That hasn't been said by anybody. I mean, I can see why journalists would suggest it and they've been given a bit of evidence, but uh, that is not what the policy um, has not been said, and that is not the policy position as I understand it. So um, the first point is I think all of us who have made the case powerfully for an in innovation-led economy need to keep making it, hold government to all of the manifesto promises in 2019, and assume, but not assume, that uh, that all holds true. And I'm going to devote my energy now to making sure that that, um, trying to be a powerful voice and spokesman for that, 
quiet revolution, because it is, has been a quiet revolution in conservative thinking. When David Willits and I and a few others set off in 2010 to change the economic orthodoxy, to insist that the structural economic crisis this country faces, structural deficit driven by public sector pensions, welfare, healthcare, and debt, the only way to get out of that is through an innovation economy. Why? Because it grows faster than the rest of the economy. It rises, drives up productivity. It attracts inward investment. It makes us home to sectors that are growing not at 2 or 3% a year, but at 200% a year. That is the only way this little, heavily populated, aging economy with creaking public services and an old-fashioned Whitehall model of public service administration is going to get out of debt. It is the only way. Uh, and the innovation economy delivers both huge growth and helps improve productivity in public and private services. So let's keep repeating that message. And I would suggest that it's never been more urgent. And the last 12 years have shown that we've, uh, we've made really good progress, but I think we're only in the foothills of becoming an innovation economy. And I use that phrase, that doesn't mean an economy that does a bit of innovation. An innovation economy, an innovation nation, is a nation in which innovation runs right the way through it. More people work in it, more people coming out of school are taught about it, uh, more companies in our economy are doing it. Uh, by the way, that isn't science. Innovation is something a bit different. Uh, the city is financing more of it. It's a bigger generator of our revenues and a bigger contributor to our exports. It's a much bigger strategic shift. If we don't do it, we will continue to lurch from boom to bust of retail consumer cycles, and we won't tackle the underlying fundamental structural problem in our economy. S second point, to me, leveling up was the really big idea of the 2019 government. For all of Boris's foibles, uh, I think it was and remains an inspiring conservative mission, uh, and I hope all governments will take it forward. Uh, and I think the public are with us on it. I think they also think that it is absolutely right. Whether you believe in it in terms of social justice or in terms of economic renewal or the broader economy, we won't get this whole economy going if we leave two-thirds of it behind, uh, or in terms of becoming a genuine innovation nation and supporting those 30-odd clusters from Spaceport in Newquay to uh, satellite manufacturing in Glasgow to Digital Health Quantum DX in Newcastle to the Marine Tech cluster on the South Coast to the Agritech in Norwich. We're pretty good at this, um, but it's not structurally wired into our economy yet. So I think the levelling up piece is absolutely fundamental, and uh, I think it's also key to changing the political economy of this country. And if this party wants to be a party for strengthening the union, for reaching out and bringing this country together, then innovation economy is absolutely key. You won't have an opportunity society without an innovation economy and vice versa. And we need to be, in my view, the party of optimism, of economic growth, the right sort of growth and of opportunity all around the country. Uh, and third point, um, these may be testing times, they are indeed politically and economically. But let's go with, you know, politics is about going with what you've got. Uh, I welcome Quasi going into the Treasury to challenge Treasury orthodoxy. It needs it. I welcome the focus on growth. Uh, he and I both, uh, as ministers in the last year in Bayes, pulling our hair out at decisions announced in the CSR, then reviewed by the Treasury or re-put re through value for money assessments. I mean, this Treasury would put the, you know, D-Day landings through a value for money assessment and conclude they're not worth doing. Um, it, it, this is bonkers, and we'll never be an innovation economy if we take two and a half years to make decisions, fragment money, issue it in silos with heavy conditionality, and if people don't spend it all, take it back from them, and if they generate savings, take those back as well. Th that orthodoxy of top-down command and control, 
penny-pinching financial control-ism is not going to deliver an innovation economy. An innovation economy requires real commitment to supporting innovation in sectors, in places, allowing local leaders to deliver innovation-led growth. And my last point would be around this country, here in Birmingham, but in other clusters, there is a huge opportunity to generate private income. And I'd like to see a generation of cluster development corporations. The powers are all on the statute book. Uh, imagine a West Midlands Development Corporation, Innovation Development Corporation. You could raise a billion or two in a week if you gave Andy Street and you gave Andy Burnham in Manchester, I'm not making a party point, the powers to drive an innovation development corporation, to buy up the spare land, compulsory purchase it, do land value capture gain, do some tax increment financing. There's a wall of money internationally. How do they invest in a cluster? I don't know. Who do you pick up the phone to? And I think there's an opportunity for us to create some private funded innovation-led development corporations around this country. And if the, the Treasury should be jumping up and down saying, yes. But at the moment, that is anathema to Treasury thinking. The cheap money comes from the Treasury. They consider any money raised off the back of assets as debt. They're terrified about the leadership, uh, the memories of the 1970s and Red Ken, 60s. I mean, this is 50 years ago. Local government leaders today aren't closet Marxists. This is bonkers. So we should be unleashing the power of local leaders, local companies in clusters, and the wall of money internationally. And we could have 10 clusters in this country growing, delivering really good, high-quality growth very fast. Thank you, George. Lots to pick up on there. And I wonder if we can come back to the point of, um, you know, what's the interaction between challenging Treasury orthodoxy and the innovation agenda in questions? Um, Ed, I want to come to you uh, next, talking of local leaders. Um, what's your take on what this government should be doing on levelling up an innovation? What kind of policies would support that? And crucially, what's the role of combined authorities um, in supporting that agenda? Thanks, Emma. And thanks to um, IFG for inviting me to, to, to speak. Um, here this morning. I think, I mean, the, the first thing I'd want to say is um, really just to spell out the importance of innovation to the kind of growth that this government is talking about. Um, it may seem obvious to all of us in the room, um, but I haven't heard the productivity word used a huge amount in the last couple of weeks. And yet, what we know, as George has already indicated, is that it is innovation that is really going to drive that productivity, which is going to drive the economic growth that I think this government is, is looking for. Um, but I think um, the innovation economy um, goes further than that. And I think, you know, in terms of achieving some of our net zero goals, achieving better well-being in the workplace, for example, these are all sort of um, added benefits of, of really focusing on uh, a strong innovation economy. And that's why um, at the West Midlands Combined Authority, uh, we uh, do focus significantly on um, innovation um, as being an absolutely key driver of the kind of regional economy that we want to, we want to develop. And I'll come back to that um, in just a moment. But there is a reality check here, which is to say that um, public sector R&D is not following the market um, in a region like the West Midlands. Um, there are huge uh, discrepancies uh, between the amount of public R&D that's coming into a region like um, the West Midlands compared to what the private sector um, is doing. For every pound of public R&D, we are seeing four pounds worth um, of uh, private sector R&D. Um, and, you know, sometimes when we talk about levelling up, we... Uh, think about sort of the thriving London and the southeast economy, um, I could make a case that that's propped up by public R&D. 
um, and that actually we're doing far better in some of the regions given the small amounts of public R&D that we have uh, in these regions and the amount that we can actually bring in through private investment. Now, in quantum terms, it's much smaller, but in proportionate terms, it actually shows that I think we are, uh, if you like, driving our innovation, our, our private sector innovation, much harder um, than, than London and the South East, where they depend uh, to a far greater uh, extent on public R&D. Our population in the West Midlands is 7.2% of the um, national population. We get just 4.3% of Research Council uh, funding. So there's a big uh, discrepancy there, and there are other figures that you could throw around as well, which is why I think we were so encouraged by Boris Johnson's commitment um, to uh, spending 40% uh, um, of um, public R&D outside London and the southeast of the of the of the uplift um, that he was arguing for, and we've calculated for the West Midlands that would effectively double the amount of public R and D from 500 million to about a billion uh, coming into into this particular region. But there ain't, uh, you, you asked me the question, what does the combined authority do? How, how you know what what, what can we do? Um, the first, I think, there's three things. First of all, um, we have a really really crucial coordination. Role. That might sound very um, flimsy, you know, not not. But actually, um, the mayor Andy Street, I think, spends the large majority of his time talking to private businesses, investors, um, innovators um, in the West Midlands who are wanting to um, invest um, in this region. That's an absolutely critical role. Um, you know, the the question: Who do you call? Um, you know, we can answer that in the West Midlands. We can say that we have a mayor who is ready to meet any private business that's looking to invest, and that probably tells you a huge amount about the amount of investment that we do bring in. Um, but it goes beyond that, and we have um, uh, we've done our own research about which clusters we think um, are the highest performing, where we have that comparative advantage um, in the West Midlands, and we have um, a plan for growth that we've pulled together, which identifies the eight fastest growing sectors. Um, for the West Midlands that we need to invest in. So that gives us, if you like, a, a framework uh, and, and we actually have a, an innovation framework that sits alongside our plan for growth that helps us to shape and direct the investment that we need um, for the, the, the region. And we have a, um, a business-led um, partnerships around each of our eight clusters um, in order to really kind of ask the questions, what is it that's going to really unlock innovation in those in those different clusters? Um, and indeed, West Midlands Innovation Board as well. So there's a coordination role that I think we play, uh, which could easily go overlooked, but actually is really critical to the, the kind of role. And again, if we look at um, countries overseas, um, having those uh, mezzanine institutions and structures um, between national government and very local is absolutely critical to driving productivity. There's lots of academic research that shows that that's the thing that we've been lacking in England in particular, is having institutions at the right scale to allow for those horizontal linkages, to allow for um, business support at the right uh, level. Um, so uh, I think that's really key. The second role is around delivery. Um, we have an innovation programme. Um, we put three million pounds of our own money into that. It's not a vast amount of money, I accept, but it does give us um, some, um, uh, if you like, um, skin in the game. Um, it enables us uh, to work with particular businesses, um, offering uh, business support, access to uh, particular pots of national funding, uh, engagement with UK UKRI, and, and so on. Um, it's all about driving up 
demand-led business innovation. That's what the programme's focused on. Um, and we have a range of pilot programmes as well. Um, everything from, I don't know, how we support low-carbon um, clean tech clusters through to um, how we uh, do the social economy more effectively in, uh, in the West Midlands. So um, that's our innovation programme. And of course, now um, we've been identified as one of three areas to uh, be the home to innovation accelerator, £33 million um, investment into the region. Uh, we're working very closely with our university partners, Catapults and so on, um, to focus our innovation accelerator around health and med tech and also clean tech. So um, quite a lot of work going in um, on that. But we really see that relationship as being a springboard to the third and last role that I think we've got um, as a combined authority. And that's really in relation to um, lobbying government and trying to get government to come up with better policies that will support us better um, around the innovation um, agenda. Um, another thing that was announced through the Leveling Up White Paper was that the West Midlands Combined Authority can bring forward what's being described as a trailblazer devolution deal, um, going further and faster than other combined authorities in the country uh, in order to be um, uh, to be kind of clearer with governments about what's going to unlock growth, what's going to level up our region. And one of the key things that we are saying sort of through the Innovation Accelerator is that we want a much closer relationship with governments, and in particular UKRI and research councils, in actually co-developing a pipeline of innovation investment. At the moment, uh, we have very little say over the way in which um, those large um, public funds are, are spent. So it kind of brings me back to where I started, really, that we, we accept um, the importance and the need for UKRI to operate as it does, but we think we could get a lot closer to it in aligning some of its investment with our eight clusters and with some of the things that we need to, to unlock innovation in the region. Um, Rain, I want to come to you now. Uh, most R&D is performed by private companies, many of which uh, CBI represents. What government policies do you think um, would be most effective to encourage private innovation to happen outside of the golden triangle of Oxford, Cambridge and London? Yeah, um, uh, absolutely. And, and look, it's, it's great uh, to, to be here and... Uh, um, and, and thanks uh, to the Institute uh, for Government for not only uh, hosting us, but I think paying an important role in, in sort of holding our institutions uh, to account in uh, what's been a, you know, an interesting uh, few days and weeks, uh, let's put it that way. Um, uh, and I think, look, you're absolutely right in terms of when, when I speak to, to businesses, I think they, they certainly back the, the government's ambition on growth, but really see innovation as absolutely central uh, to that and we really need the sort of macroeconomic stability and frameworks and long-term certainty so they can uh, get behind and and innovate and, and invest so I think in terms of policies what we need to see I think as George was saying is an absolutely rock-solid commitment to the R&D roadmap that was a huge success and a huge I think win for the role of innovation uh, in our economy and uh, you know in recent years we've really managed to increase the overall amount of public spending on R&D, but we still fall behind our, our uh, G7 peers and, and the rest of the OECD. So we really need to continue on that commitment to get to 2.4% of uh, R&D spend uh, as a proportion of our economy. Um, because, you know, if we, you know, when we sort of survey businesses, we find that over two thirds of them, if they have that long-term certainty around the innovation framework, they will get uh, get behind that and, uh, and invest and so it is just so so critical um, 
And look, I think we saw during the pandemic, right, where what we can do if we really uh, unleash uh, the potential. And I think we're really fortunate in the UK in that we have world leading universities in every region uh, of the UK. And there's so much we can do to build on that. The role that they play in, in terms of basic science and research and innovation is, is so core. And, you know, we found that the more, you know, if, if a business had received uh, some degree of public funding in the previous five years, they were much more likely to be committed to uh, more investment and innovation over the next five years. So I think, as we saw with the development of the vaccine, you need to have that public-private partnership to really bring uh, the innovation at scale uh, to meet some of the challenges we're facing. And I think the net zero uh, transition as well is a really key part of that. And I think, again, uh, it's about R&D, but also having that commitment to the net zero transition, because I think the development of green technologies to meet um, our, our net zero transition is so vital. So I think we need to have that commitment uh, enshrined uh, across government to, to really make that work. I think in terms of the specific policies we need to see beyond having that, that roadmap and that commitment to, to net zero, you know, our view is, is we need to see more of the cross-departmental delivery of, of R&D and having innovation uh, in every government uh, department. So it isn't just, uh, you know, just siloed to one government department. So having something like Accelerate UK, which is working on that cross-government delivery, so they can really make sure that that's happening across regions uh, in the UK. I think there is a role uh, for the tax landscape, and I do think you know, the, the government has done well in terms of the R&D tax credit. It's seen as, as sort of world leading, uh, I think, in helping to ensure that we see innovation happening uh, in the UK. But there's more we can do to make sure that it uh, is fit for a modern economy. It thinks about data and in, um, uh, cloud computing uh, and digital innovation as part of that. But it also thinks about the wider capital expenditure that happens on, on R&D. So I think there's a role uh, within that. Uh, and I think you know, over 30% of manufacturers have said if we have that, uh, you know, an R&D uh, tax credit in place, it helps them actually to invest outside of the, the Southeast uh, as well. So it is definitely part of our whole uh, leveling up agenda as, as well. Um, so I think, you know, this is what we need to see is that commitment to the R&D um, tax, you know, the R&D roadmap at that 2.4%. Uh, really enshrined uh, net zero at the heart of that and really backing our world leading uh, universities which exist around here you know obviously in, uh, University of Birmingham uh, as well as one of our world leading universities so I think there's so much we can do to really back the innovation that's happening in the UK but we do need that long-term uh, commitment and it's got to be central uh, to this growth strategy and, and growth target if we really want to uh, be world leading and continue to be. Brilliant. Thank you, Rain. And we might come back to the point um, of whether the, the target is at risk, um, given what has happened in the last few weeks. Um, Adam, I want to come to you now. Um, so, Costain delivers all sorts of innovative projects right across the UK. From your perspective as a kind of private sector innovator, what would you find most useful for government to do that would actually help you kind of develop and deliver those projects as effectively as possible? Okay, so morning, everybody. And, and firstly, thanks to the IFG uh, for uh, co-hosting this with us and on behalf of business thank you for listening and inviting us to the conversation at this event um, it really is welcomed certainly from Costain and I hope I can speak on behalf of every business for even being here it's a pleasure um, so Costain we are a, a major UK PLC business um, we are predominantly known for works on the likes of HS2 
Thames Tideway Crossrail, but we're also heavily involved in a lot of the innovation work that goes on, particularly in the clusters. We're doing a lot of work in the aviation and hydrogen industry. So although we do big infrastructure projects, we are very well positioned for maximising the opportunity that innovation faces this country. Um, and that's why I wanted to pick on three points, and they're, they're quite specific, but uh, this is in the spirit of being helpful and hopefully not replicating what the other pan panel members have said here today. And the first point is around people, behaviours and culture. And a key point that I've picked up on, and I think on every member, every member of the panel's point, is collaboration. Finding access to innovation as a private organisation is a nightmare at this moment in time. There's great links everywhere. You can go all sorts of places with it. And, and there's fantastic examples out there. And I think the word collaboration is something we need to use a lot more in innovation and helping each other, public, private, local, central, academic, SMEs, large corporates, whatever it is, how can we effectively collaborate, whatever collaboration needs to mean to use and access the greatest brains that we've got in and outside of this country to unlock the value that can in innovation can drive. It has really become a challenge to identify that and that would be a, a key ask for us is to pick up on that collaboration point and come closer together to drive this innovation agenda forward. Point two is around procurement and in procurement from a private business you may say okay um, where's this going to go but I think procurement is fundamental and there's a massive opportunity with the procurement reform that's going on at this moment in time. Procurement is all about input in my view at this moment in time so it's all about input the value you can provide at the input um, but how often do we look at the output and that's from an innovation sense of view and also the great projects that we do in this country so for example I'm, I can use the likes of a HS2 or a smart motorways however contentious you might make, might feel about them have we measured the output of innovation from those projects have we measured the, the economic growth and communicated that clearly the SME engagement the innovation the catalyst that those projects have created to take all over the world. There's, there's fantastic examples in my business that I can just keep going on, but I won't today. And the final point, um, and it's a subject I've done some research on and I found very little about it, uh, and this is to hopefully prompt some debate, is actually around the use of IPR. Um, and the previous... Can you just tell us what um, IPR is, just in case anybody in the audience doesn't Good. know. Good. I told you to pick me up on acronyms, so thank <laughs> you very much. Um, intellectual property rights. So the, the old way of working used to be um, whoever created the idea would, and they worked with government would generally give it to government uh, through the contractual mechanisms from a private industry. That is maturing ever so slightly at this moment in time. And private businesses were all about, this is my IPR, I'm not going to let anybody else in, I'm going to go capitalise it all over the world for my own personal commercial benefit. I think there's a mature conversation that's needed around the intellectual property rights. And to be honest, we would welcome the conversation with government, be it central or local, about how can we, as the private industry, not just Costain, create an environment where we can all benefit from the intellectual property rights that are created through the innovation programmes. It's not about us, it's not about government, it's not about an organisation that's got these great ideas, it's how can we together capitalise and commercialise on the ideas, the thinking, the products, the services that we push forward within this country. If you imagine how much IPR the government must own somewhere, through all the contracts, I can only talk on Costain's behalf here, there's loads of IPR in the contracts that we can't access because it's government owned. How, how much could that give back to the generating that we could then reinvest back into innovation. It's, it's an untapped conversation from a holistic point of view as far as I'm concerned. 
and that's all I wanted to say today. Brilliant, thank you very much. Um, I'm aware that we're already uh, at quarter past, so we will come out to questions very soon. But one thing I wanted to ask um, perhaps everybody on the panel, but um, George, I might come to you first. Uh, we've heard lots from almost all of you about the importance of long-term planning and investment to support innovation. What kind of impact is the economic and policy uncertainty that we've seen in the last couple of weeks likely to have on innovation? And given the kind of spending restraint government has indicated it's going to pursue, is the R&D spending plans, are they at risk? George. Uh, thanks, two important questions. I, I think the general, the high level uncertainty, which is, um, I mean, it, there's a lot of global uncertainty. I'm not, I'm not saying we don't have our own uncertainty as well, but um, I think actually, in terms of businesses, that redoubles people's commitment to continue to invest in their own productivity, in their own long-term futures, to make sure they're more competitive. So I, I'm not worried that the political turmoil, uh, both macro and uh, you know geopolitical, and here in the UK, is undermining business investment in, in innovation. But I think on your second point, there is. Um, I think there must be a worry about, unless somebody from the government starts speaking pretty fast about this agenda. Um, I mean, Nuzgani was only, her portfolio was only confirmed last night, so I'm not criticizing her at all. She's, she's only just in post. But I think people want to hear from the government, PDQ, that the commitment to a science, technology, innovation-led economy is not being diluted by the announcements we've heard. Some might conclude that it is. And that would be, I think, a huge mistake. I couldn't be clearer. I, I think it would be a disaster. But we shouldn't assume it's been said. But I think we should all make sure that the new minister is clear that we're not in any way um, abandoning that commitment. Because I think if that isn't said, you might well see companies say, well, we were quite excited by the UK science superpower commitment, much bigger increase in R&D in the economy, the innovation accelerators. Is this still the policy? And we all know that investment cycles don't work on political cycles. People need that confidence here in the UK. So um, I think that is a really important point. I would just say, I'm fascinated contributions. I, um, I was particularly struck, Adam, by, and I'd, I'm sure people will ask about it, but your comment about collaboration being very difficult on procurement, I'd love to get to the bottom of that. Um, and the government IPR piece, I used to be the minister for that, uh, and there was a proposal to set up a new government office for intellectual property and I was quite worried that that would lead to 50 very nice civil servants in the cabinet office writing memos about IP. My instinct would be to publish it, put it on a database, shine the light of um, you know, uh, publicity on it and open the door and say if you'd like to bid for some of it, we're open for business. Because I think if people could see the IP, they, it's only getting less valuable with every day, right? So I, I think there's a more entrepreneurial way of doing government as well. Brilliant. Thank you. Rain, are you worried that, um, that the R&D spending targets could be at risk? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think look, it, the, the government's in a, a challenging position. It, it really does need to look at their, you know, the, those medium-term... It, it needs to regrain that medium-term fiscal credibility, mm -hmm. right? We need to... And, and I think, look, uh, has it been challenging the, the macro uncertainty what we've seen happen to the exchange rate to gilt to um you know on businesses thinking about investing uh in the uk yes it has but that doesn't it, it's certainly salvageable right mm -hmm. and i think we've already seen 
uh, confidence returned to markets. And I think it was really important that the Chancellor yesterday reiterated the independence of the Bank of England, uh, that the OBR would do not just their forecast, but importantly, the scorecard, the report card on the government's policies, and that that will happen uh, by the end of this month. And we've already seen markets react pol positively to that. So I think that was really important. And now we need to move forward and really get that focus on the growth target. Now, secondly, I mean, I think, you know, if, if we are serious about getting to 2.5% growth, that is absolutely around people, capital, ideas, and innovation. And innovation has to be uh, at the core of it. Um, you know, and I think if we know from some of the academic research, from, from what we know about the returns from innovation spending in terms of what that does to your growth and productivity are extremely high, and, and the OBR will know that as well. Uh, so I think it would be foolish to, you know, to, to use this moment to retrench on uh, that 2.4% target. But I can understand in government when you're, you're faced with looking at spending commitments, it may be tempting, but I think it would be really short-sighted. Uh, and it just, you know, it wouldn't achieve uh, what we're all trying to do, which is to boost growth and living standards uh, around the UK. So I do think it's absolutely critical that the government uh, keep that commitment, keep the roadmap uh, in place if we're really going to drive the innovation-led economy that we want to see here in the UK. Ed. Yeah, it's been quite interesting um, the past couple of weeks, really, just to, again, reflect on the role of a combined authority uh, and a mayor whilst there seems to be so much turbulence going on nationally. Mm. And, you know, um, I think you only have to go to some of the um, fringe events and so on that Mayor Andy Street has been doing here at the Conservative Party conference. And um, there's a sense of presence, there's a sense of stability, there's a sense of certainty that we can express as a region, even though it feels as though globally, nationally, there's a lot of chaos going around. And, you know, we've got plans in place, we've got our plan for growth, we've got our devolution plans, we've got, um, you know, a real sense of certainty around our regional strategy. And I guess what we are consistently saying is, you know, if government was to trust us more with the things that we are doing, we can actually bring that level of certainty and consistency, at least to regional businesses, to create that platform for innovation and indeed for all types of private investment. And I think that's what we're trying to do as a combined authority as a, as a, as, and as a mayoralty um, in the West Midlands. So we give we can give a level of regional certainty even where um, nationally and globally things feel very fractured. But if I can just drill down a little bit as well um, to kind of illustrate this, um, because one of the obviously the, one of the key things about the mini budget and all that's happened over the past few weeks is the energy crisis, and there I think um, what government has done particularly with business is to create a six-month window for businesses to innovate and for businesses to um, think very quickly and seriously about how they're going to decarbonize and in the West Midlands we have a disproportionate number of small and particularly mid-sized energy intensive industries that have been saying to us we are going to disappear and we are critical parts of supply chains for the car industry for you know, low carbon sector and so on, um, unless we can do something. Now, government has effectively, through the EBRS, the Energy Bill Relief Scheme, bought us a six-month window. But what we've said is that that's going to require a lot of very fast innovation, very fast 
uh, transformation amongst many of our businesses. And we've got a five-point plan that we've put to Jacob Rees-Mogg and said, look, give us this additional business support, innovation support that we need, and we'll be able to do far more with these critical businesses over the next six months. If we all just say, well, there's the scheme, sit back, businesses are not in a, they haven't got the headroom to be able to innovate and invest in the way they need to. And so in six months' time, we'll find ourselves at exactly the same point. We won't have moved any further forward. So that's an example where we are ready. Um, we've got six different business support programs around industrial decarbonisation and um, energy intensive support, but we need to just put those on steroids. We need to have much better access to the Industrial, industrial Energy Transformation Fund, which at the moment I think is about a nine-month uh, process to actually get any money out of that fund nationally. Um, so we, we, we've got to see that being devolved and we can get that out to businesses really, really quickly. Uh, so that's, uh, and, then, and then finally, I, I, I guess my concern is not just about the commitment to R&D um, and, and innovation spending, it's the commitment to levelling up as well, per se. Uh, and if I take investment zones as being a very high profile policy, um, it doesn't feel as though there is a particular targeting for investment zones in particular parts of the country where you might need to see that productivity elevated. It looks as though, to me, um, that those innovation zones could be anywhere in the country, where well, they can be anywhere in the country, and that won't necessarily help us narrow that gap between regional productivity and London and the southeast. Brilliant, thanks, Ed. And that final point's a very important one. I'm going to come out to the audience now. So we're going to take questions in groups of three. Um, if you could tell us uh, who you are, uh, where you're from, um, for a bit of context. And if I can plead with people to ask questions rather than make comments, um, that would be much appreciated. <coughs> Thanks. Uh, Owen Jackson from Cancer Research UK. Uh, really interesting comments from the panel. One thing that's not been talked about much is health. Now, the UK, I think, is unique in the OECD economies to have on the back of COVID-19, we've not seen the return of our workforce to, 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 to economic, to, to, to being productive. Now, a big part of that is, is chronic health uh, problems are preventing people from coming back to work. Now, Cancer Research UK are here uh, campaigning for Smoke Free UK. So smoking is the biggest single cause of cancer and it is the biggest single cause of uh, uh, premature death in the UK. It costs the economy about 17 billion pounds a year and we know that the impacts of, of smoking are not evenly felt across the country. In fact, you know, many of those areas that you flagged, George, in terms of those clusters are the areas that we know have got really significant health inequalities. So one thing the government could do that would really help, I think, in terms of supporting innovation and driving levelling up is to address some of these big health inequalities around smoking um, and actually return those, those uh, uh, communities to the workforce. So I suppose my question is, what's the role for national government, local government and business to, um, to improve the health of the workforce and to address some of these productivity losses, um, and particularly in those, un, in, in those communities that are going to be most affected. Thank you. Got one here. Uh, hi there, I'm Sancho Sen. I work for Costain, so uh, early disclosure there. Um, I'm going to ask this question from a different perspective, not from a, a non-Custain perspective, but from my other perspective as being a parliamentary candidate and having lived and worked in a lot of places in the UK. Uh, what jumps out at me is the positives that we've heard today about the importance of levelling up, the importance of taking things out of London and the south southeast. And when I think of where I've lived and worked in the East Midlands, the North East, North Wales, and even in Scotland, 
I'm very much for this, this whole idea of using energy and innovation to drive this, but we, we can't lose track of the big picture here, which is not let's get some funding out of London and spread it around the country. There's a global opportunity, there's a global challenge here, and, and my question really is how can we make sure that we don't get focused on how can we spread London money around England and say how can we be competitive against clusters in, say, an equivalent Japanese cluster, a cluster in India, in France, in Canada, in the USA, and make sure we've, we've truly got the, uh, the big picture covered. Thank you. And then just here. Thank you. Um, I'm Sarah Walno, Chief Exec of Asthma and Lung UK. I wanted to ask about the interplay of innovation and public services and a potential squeeze on spend. So in health, um, you know, I mean, very reassured to hear the panel's words, hugely supportive of more innovation. Often the stumbling block is then adoption and seeing that through into the health service uh, and, and to patient benefit. And I think lots of health conversations I've been involved in this week and, and last have really focused on the lack of headspace in the health service to adopt, to drive innovation. I'm interested if other people see that in other public services, but in the context of potentially squeezing uh, spend on public services, how, in, how do we continue this championing of innovation? Brilliant, thank you very much. Okay, so we've got um, two kind of questions on health, um, health inequalities, and then having the kind of headspace for, for innovation um, given the spending squeeze, and then how to avoid a focus on just spreading the London money around. Um, Rain, I'm going to come to you first. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm really glad that, that health has, has come up, and I, I, I mean, I alluded to it a, a bit in terms of uh, the development of, of the vaccine and how important that was uh, in, in the UK, but I think you know, we know that one in five um, of the spend in R&D is on health innovation, right? So, so I think it, it, it is so critical. And if, if I'm heartened by one thing during the pandemic, it was just how everyone has woken up to how central health is, uh, you know, not just to our R&D uh, innovation, but also to us as organizations, uh, you know, both physical and mental health. Uh, and how much more open the conversations are around that and how people have really started making the link with productivity, with well-being and, and just how central this, uh, this is. And I think, look, we, we absolutely need to have a focus on, on prevention. And I think both of you have raised different, different elements of, of that. And I think the other thing I would put into space where we've also done some work is thinking about air quality, right? So it's as much the net zero uh, transition is about reducing our carbon emissions. It's also about some of the co-benefits that come from that. If we do it right, this is about healthy uh, lifestyles and it's absolutely about the air that we all breathe. And I think, look, COVID showed us how important that is fundamentally to our health. And we know from the economics of it, one of the challenges we're facing in the UK at the moment is lots of people have left the workforce. Uh, particularly older workers. Now, some of that may just be through choice, through different lifestyle choices, but there's, it's clear that long-term health is one of is is one of the um, fallouts of, of COVID. And you know, at the same time, there's obviously a lot of pressure on on the NHS. We have one in ten uh, people. We were had a fringe event yesterday uh, with Pfizer there, and uh, uh, Susan, the the CEO, was was talking about the fact that we have one in ten people waiting for hospital appointments. So. I think that isn't just, you, you know, we need to think about how we use innovation to help solve some of those waiting lists and it will take spending. So I think 
um, you know, but the more we can get the focus on prevention, uh, absolutely will, will help us get there. But I think health being central to us as businesses, but also to our economy, uh, is so important, and I, I'm glad that we're, we've all sort of woken up uh, to that. So I do think it's really, really uh, important. Um, and I think just on, on this sort of other question about, you know, how do we just not spread the money to all regions and really, you know, I think we do have to, to back some of the really uh, big bets, but I think what we need to see is those all those bets can't be in London and the Southeast, right? Which, which you could arguably say has been, you know, and I think if you look at what's happening in, net zero uh, T-side, you know, in the Humber, in the, you know, what is really happening. We need to, I think, be choiceful, but but pick some areas and some of these world-leading clusters and really uh, get get behind them. But, you know, they can't all be in, in one region of, of the UK. I think we do need to think uh, more broadly than that. Thank you. George. Thanks. Um, let me just take the cluster question first, because I, uh, and then get into health. I, I don't think this is zero-sum game. So, I, I mean, if you were looking in at the UK internationally from San Diego, Singapore, Shanghai, which is the context that we need to be thinking of, um, I think people would look and say, well, you've clearly got a cluster in Oxford, Cambridge, London. It's huge. They should say, you've also got a cluster in the N8, the Northern Powerhouse Research Universities. Um, I'm not sure we've yet globalized that message properly. Um, but ultimately, you know, we, the message we need to be telling internationally is Little Britain is an innovation powerhouse, not just in, I mean, the life, we'll come to health, the life sciences I think people have got, the problem is everyone else is doing it now, but we could be the same in agri-tech, in fusion, in quantum, in satellite manufacturing. We've got those nascent technologies in compound semiconductors. And the real challenge is, are we going to develop those into clusters or proper commercial clusters or just research clusters and sell out early and it is possible to do both I think um, but we won't do it by undermining the golden triangle uh, the golden triangle is the big oak tree and we need some saplings all around it to grow the forest they're there and that's why I was putting such a focus on those uh, regional clusters but we don't undermine the golden triangle but I would focus our support on growing those other clusters out so um, health is par excellence the sector where this innovation economy um, the rubber hits the runway. I mean, there is no sector in our economy where the cost of, the structural cost of our health requirements, the creaking and old-fashioned uh, underinvested infrastructure of our public service delivery is going to bankrupt the public finances and where we need more urgent adoption of innovation or where the growth potential is huge. And this is a win-win. And that's why I was so passionate about life sciences in 2010. And the first parliament people used to say, why do you always bang on about life sciences? Well, after the pandemic, I think the public has got the message. They can see, they want us to be a life science powerhouse. The big challenge is adoption. And I think this, and your, your point is really well made, Sarah, that public sector enterprise generally, which is a theme I've long uh, banged on about, we tend to think that the public sector is sclerotic and the private sector is innovative. Not true. And if, if it were true, it would be a disaster. We need to support innovators in the public services some very basic stuff. If you run a hospital more cheaply than the next person, you should be allowed to keep the savings. And we should reward great managers in the public sector. But on health, we, we have got to take innovation from something that the NHS still thinks is, is a sort of benign distraction. Oh, we've got an innovation strategy. Well, that, that tells you that it's not mainstreamed. But it is really hard because, as you well know, the supply chains are huge, the decision-making is complex, 
one clinician says, I want to use this innovation, you've got to get permission from about 16 people, treasury funding rules make it. So we've made it really hard, but we have got to crack it. And that's what our life science missions were about, trying to take the focus away from sort of sectoral technology development, focus on a, a patient cohort. So we set out eight missions for eight key chronic diseases and insist there's no silos, total mission around data, patient engagement, and charities. I think it's the only way we'll really bring it together, and I would be very worried if the new government decided they were a distraction, because they're absolutely fundamental to tackling that problem. And Owen, um, you know, there is no stronger correlation than health and wealth in terms of the prospects of left-behind places, of course smoking, but the, I think the, you know, the real opportunity is both when you improve the public health of a place like, say, west of Glasgow, which has got the worst outcomes for men in this country, like 18 years shorter life expectancy than in South London. It's a national disgrace. So investing in that, harnessing that as a research engine for how we intervene in chronic diseases, making that a chronic disease segment, giving people faster access to treatments, making that a test bed for treatments, would be a really good way of both tackling the immoral health inequalities and making that area a beacon of innovation. So that, uh, that's why I think the innovation economy is so important. It, it tackles the weaknesses in the system uh, on both the private and public sector side. Thank you. Adam? Just picking up on the health point, because what strikes me from certainly my world or our world as a business is there's always more we should be doing. And, and we as a business talk about improving people's lives and, and leaving a legacy and social value and how do we give something back? And it, it got me thinking of how often do we think about the system that we're creating here? And, and if we're, again, I'm gonna use HS2, apologies to keep harping on about it, but if we're leaving HS2 as a legacy, not, let's not just leave the fantastic rail system that gets people from A to B in whatever fashion that needs to be taken, but actually the environment that that project touches how do we make sure the health system is considered when the project is conceived, delivered, and, and ultimately operated as well? And I think quite often that system, the broad system thinking, is definitely not considered around infrastructure. Um, and that, that's, that's a challenge I'll, I'll take back. And, and I don't actually personally haven't made that connection, so it's a really good question on the health front. And I think there's a lot more we can do there. On, on the sort of the regional point, I also... Um, on the infrastructure point again, I don't think these clusters should be static in their location. It does help for investment purposes and other reasons, but actually if you can create this rolling system of innovation that follows infrastructure around the country, you could create something that's more dynamic, a bit more innovative in its fail fast, learn quick type of way of working. Um, and again, using the roads there's loads of upgrades to roads going on, be that maintenance or physical hard upgrades. Why don't, why don't innovation clusters follow them as they go? Why don't we push our infrastructure in a different way to its limit rather than push it to how much tarmac can we lay, how much more productivity can get out of the physical way of doing it? Let's think about productivity around innovation in a different way around infrastructure. That's my view from our experience, or my experience anyway. I think let's think about the system in a different way. We could probably answer both questions, just changing the game slightly, being innovative in our approach. Thank you, Ed. Just on the, um, I mean, it was a really good challenge about you know London versus the rest, and 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 I I I, I, I take it sort of head on. And it does occasionally, 
people like me from the West Midlands do seem to be kind of whinging about, you know, it being unfair and so on. I think it's a very good point that you've made. But I guess my kind of, uh, my kind of response is I think we're very, very aware of the fact that we're competing in a global market. And the point is we're doing really well in that global market because we're bringing four pounds worth of private investment into innovation in the West Midlands yeah. and the government's only sticking in a quid. And you're just like, well, you know, if Bayes claim to be spatially blind and UK are claims to be spatially blind, then for a start, I don't think that's a particularly good policy position in the first place. And secondly, um, they're not certainly not following the market if that's what spatially blind is a euphemism for. So, you know, there's, there, are, there are some issues here. I'm not, I'm, so I don't want to kind of just go, yeah, yeah, fair cop, but I, I think there are some issues. On health, I mean, a general point about health is that um, it's not historically, with the exception of Greater Manchester, it's not historically been part of the remit of mayoral combined authorities. And um, again, it speaks to a highly centralised NHS, uh, which is actually quite problematic when you come down to then how do you govern this, how do you coordinate things at the um, uh, at the regional or local local level. And we've now got um, uh, ICSs, um, integrated care systems, and we're trying to implement those and looking at how they're going to work and so on. And that's problematic. But I think we are very, very mindful of the fact that um, health and wealth are two sides of the same coin. And so the mayor has been you know, very, very keen uh, to explore what can we do within our uh, role uh, to be able to encourage health um, and, and tackling health inequalities in, in the region. So we have a health in all policies approach. So for that, we invest a lot into active travel, for example, within our, within our transport remit. Um, we uh, think a lot about air quality. We've just committed to a regional air quality plan. I think we're the first combined authority to do that in a really effective um, way. Our housing, our retrofit programs, again, we recognize to be fundamentally about people's health as much as um, uh, a roof over their head. So, so there's some really, really critical um, issues that we're trying to play into. And again, part of our devolution proposal is that we can do more um, on this, perhaps having some kind of health inequalities duty um, that comes with uh, greater responsibilities and funds to be able to uh, approach this. But just in terms of the innovation piece, we've made health tech and med tech um, one of the uh, key themes for our innovation accelerator. But we're also really clear that that's about applied and translational research. And so back to the regional disparities question, I think this is where the regions, so to speak, offer a lot that the Golden Triangle doesn't, which is about applied and transla translational research. And that's where our forte, I think, really lies. And that's what we're really focusing on in the West Midlands around uh, innovati Innovation Accelerator. But there's also a piece which is around prevention. And I don't think we talk enough about this because a lot of health tech is actually about well, we've got a very ill population in the north therefore we're fantastic for research and uh, looking at new drugs and treatments and so on without talking about the prevention side of things and one of the challenges that we as a combined authority are bringing to our health partners at University of Birmingham at you know UHB hospitals and so on is where's the prevention agenda we don't just want innovation and research investment looking at very ill people we want to actually look at how do we prevent it in the first place. And I'm not sure that's always, the prevention agenda is high enough up the R&D uh, and innovation agenda in, in the UK. Emma, can I just, just echo that? Because um, there's a huge opportunity that the government could, could grip. If you take the West Midlands, uh, the cost of obesity-related chronic diseases, car city, motorway town, 
is calculated, fortunately, by the Treasury, so it may be wrong, but it's their number, at four billion a year for the West Midlands region. Why don't we create a innovative financing program where we said to the West Midlands guys, if you can reduce, and by the way, it's going up, it's been going up every year, if you can reduce the rate of that growth and even reduce the cost of that to your economy, because it's holding back our economy, we'll let you keep half the saving, 20% of the saving. Actually, the research suggests that 10% would be enough to incentivize radical behaviors. But imagine that, that's an innovative financing solution. And I think the leaders of the West Midlands would get together and say, did he just say we could keep some of the saving? Right. And you'd form a consortium very quickly with Medtronics, Fitbit, Lime, e-scooters, Costain. You'd build in cycle routes fast, you'd become Fit City, you'd, and the money would start pouring in. There is money all over the government P&L, but you're not allowed to keep any of it when you save it. And it's failing, that model. I just think that would be a a really good opportunity, and you could do it in other areas, if you could reduce the cost of disease and you can attract investment, you can keep a bit of both if you can do it above national trend rate and you create the incentives for these regional health innovation economies. Thank you, right. I'm going to take two more questions. Can they be very quick because uh, we're almost at time? Got one at the back there. Thank you. Um, from the London School of Economics. I was interested in... Uh, Adam's point on measuring innovation output. I wanted to get the panel's thoughts on how can innovation support be made more evidence-based. Do we know enough on what works when it comes to innovation support and especially making sure that innovation is additional? Because perhaps the last thing you want to do is funding innovation inefficiently and um, funding innovation that would have happened anyway. Thank you. And then one here. I'll be very quick. I just want to talk about the labour market and people. How do we take young people with us? I'm going to an event for Princess Trust today on NEETS. There are a lot of young people being left behind this green skills agenda and all the new skills that we're going to be needing for this work. Where, are the, where is the labour market coming from? Okay. So we've got young people in the labour market and how can we make um, the innovation agenda more evidence-based? Um, Ed, I'm going to start and work my way down the panel. Um, can I ask you to restrict your comments to oh. one minute so we finish on time? Thank you. Um, so really, really important point about evidence. Um, we've done ours. I've, I've got this in front of me. I've been, I, I, I wish I had a slide to stick it up just to uh, show the very kind of detailed evidence base that we've got behind our eight clusters and why we've identified those eight clusters to be uh, crucial for slightly different reasons, actually, um, across the West Midlands, but, uh, but that's, that's there. Um, in terms of young people, I think the point that I'd make on this is that, again, at a regional level, we can connect things together in a way in which I think you can't do very locally because it's too small a geography, and you certainly can't do at the England level. Um, and so we are responsible for the adult education program in the West Midlands. Our devolution proposals say we could go further on careers as well. Uh, we think we could deliver a much better career service if that was uh, devolved to our responsibility. Um, and then we can, because we have those employer relationships that I talked about, you can then start connecting together our skill system with our innovation system. Now we're trying to do that anyway, but again, we could do that on steroids if we had a little bit more control um, just decentralised from, from central government. Thank you. Rain? Uh, I, I think it's going to be hard to do it justice in, in 60 seconds, but, but just to say you're absolutely right. I think 
you know, for this innovation to be delivered, it, you know, young people have to be at, at the heart of that. And I think we absolutely need to have a, a focus on, on equipping our, our young people with the right uh, skills to deliver. And we know we fall behind international standards around digital skills. So, uh, you know, but I think young people want to really work on in innovative companies, right? They don't want to be working in a lag, you know, so I think it's how much we can use that as, as inspiration, but also just make sure that we're, you know, our young people are leaving school, that we have the breadth of curriculum to really help them be ready uh, for the world of work and, and have the right focus on building skills, you know, not just through universities, but the whole broader education system through further education colleges and, and beyond. Thank you. Adam. Just very quickly on the both points, actually. So the measuring is we need to be careful not to fall into the trap of measuring it um, as treasury system or any other system is designed to measure value. Um, and actually, I think one of the flags that I'd like to put out on this point is it's not necessarily measuring the innovation. It's probably measuring the learning that's taken from it. And that you want to encourage failing fast in an innovation cycle. And learning is the important measurement you want to take from this. How you do that is a whole other debate and conversation. But I think it's being careful not to fall into the measuring trap on a value for money basis or whatever basis that somebody wants to apply to it. What's the outcome you're trying to get rather than the output of that innovation? On the young people point, I know that's close to your heart, Sandra, but I think it's, it's vital we get this to be an exciting, prosperous, and also a, a way of people growing in their careers wherever those careers need to get to or could get to. And I think it's got the opportunity to revolutionize industry. We work in construction in Costain quite a lot, and I think construction has a certain reputation. If we can use innovation to change that, mm. it's gonna change the game in the long term for construction, and then ultimately give more back to the economy. Thank you. And George? Thanks. Look, on evidence, um, I just make a plea for speed. Um, I don't think we need a whole industry of academics work defining innovation. We need to be more innovative. And the biggest problem is slowness in government. We now take 15, 18 months to make a decision that when I was last minister in biz, as it then was, would take about three months. You cannot be an innovation economy if you're taking every decision slowly. Um, so that's my the point on that. Um, look, on the labour market thing, I think this is key. I've never known the young people in this country more depressed. My own children are 21 and 19. They are not full of the excitement of being young people as we, many of us, were when we left school or college, university. They, they're not excited. Their 18th and 21st birthdays, they're depressed. This is a huge problem. We won't be an innovation economy if our young people can't see the opportunities. So here would be my radical plan. Firstly, map out the jobs. We're creating incredible jobs, but we don't tell people. We don't tell teachers. So in my region in the east, we're going to create about 100,000 jobs in EV servicing. But I mean, no one knows. We're not mapping out where the jobs are coming. Secondly, I'd allow companies, sectors to pull their apprenticeship levy and create training institutes for the next generation of EV engineers, the next generation of satellite manufacturing engineers, institutes around the country funded partly by apprenticeship levy. If the government wants to cut some taxes, I'll give you a few. I'd scrap the 6% compound interest rate on tuition uh, student loans. They're a disgrace. They were put on by the Treasury when they were going to sell the loan book, couldn't sell it, kept it on, never asked Parliament. That is a tax on young people learning and earning and getting on. I'd get rid of it and I'd scrap employers NI for small companies that are growing and taking on young people. This could be the most exciting agenda, an Olympiad of innovation-led jobs and creativity to inspire the next generation. George, thank you very much. Um, very nice positive note to end on. Um, so I'm sadly going to have to draw uh, this discussion to a close. Um, look, hopefully we'll hear more from government very soon on um, R&D and innovation. Um, but in the meantime, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, thank you to our brilliant panel.
Um, and thank you to the audience for coming to talk with us. Thank you.